Scott Hahn in Joy to the World makes an interesting note that of all the stories of the Bible, the Christmas story involves the most mileage. Think about it. The story had hardly begun when Mary, pregnant with Jesus, went from Nazareth to the Judean hill country to visit Elizabeth in her need. After three months, she made the return trip back to Nazareth. When she was almost at her due date, Mary and Joseph traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem to enroll for the census. Forty days after their baby's birth, the family went to Jerusalem for the sacred rites of purification and consecration. And then sometime before Jesus was two years old, the Holy Family had to flee to Egypt. And then another time, at least before Jesus was 12, they made the return journey back from Nazareth, back to Nazareth from Egypt. And don't forget the hardship of traveling over rough trails and dirt roads. Yes, I know all the depictions show Mary seated on a donkey, but I'm skeptical. It probably was on foot. In 1993, when I was a college student at UNL, I was invited to the World Youth Day in Denver. Now I have to admit my reasons for going perhaps weren't the best. I saw it as a road trip. And oh yeah, the Pope's gonna be there. Thankfully, God can work with us wherever we're at. He used that World Youth Day in Denver to plant seeds of my vocation to the priesthood, mostly by helping me to see that the Catholic faith is just a little tiny bit bigger than Denton, Nebraska, where my home parish is. (laughs) And also instilled in me the desire to practice and live my faith more than just an hour on Sunday. It was also the first time I was introduced to the idea of a pilgrimage. My second World Youth Day was in 1997 to Paris. This time I was a seminarian. And you would think I'd learn, but I still pretty much primarily went because I wanted to see Europe for the first time, especially since they were going to stop in Rome on the way to Paris. And don't get me wrong, seeing the churches of Europe is a marvelous experience that I recommend, and I've returned to Europe many times since. But it wasn't until my third World Youth Day to Germany in 2005, this time as a priest, that I began to understand that the World Youth Day experience is not just an extended road trip. It's not just a vacation to a foreign country is something much more. It was there that I learned that we're on a pilgrimage. So what does it mean to make a pilgrimage? Well, going on a pilgrimage can seem very similar at first to a vacation. We depart from the normal routine of our everyday lives. We travel to some destination But what makes a pilgrimage isn't just the travel or even the destination. What is important is that we are on a spiritual journey. On a pilgrimage, we usually visit holy places and churches, the relics of saints or famous shrines. But ultimately, all such places and people remind us that we are on a pilgrimage, that our very lives are a journey. 
that this world is not our final home. That the destination of the pilgrimage of our lives is Jesus Christ. I mentioned it was on the World Youth Day in Germany that I learned more about what it means to be on pilgrimage. Because the theme for that World Youth Day was, we have come to adore him. The words of the three magi, the wise men who followed a star to encounter Christ. Of course, there are so many aspects of the third joyful mystery to meditate on. But I wanted to meditate on these magi, these wise men, as they're called, because they're really the first Christian pilgrims. They traveled in search of the newborn king. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they proclaimed, we have come to adore him. A great message for all of us to meditate on. For we too need to search for Jesus Christ. We seek to do him homage. Describing these wise men, St. John Paul said, they set out boldly along unknown paths and a long and by no means easy journey. They did not hesitate to leave everything behind in order to follow the star that they had seen in the east. We search for Christ and ask about his whereabouts. We come to celebrate the Mass and enter the communion of the church and hope that we can find him. And when we find him, we worship and give him homage. And then he sends us back out into the world. The story of these wise men is a microcosm of our lives. Now, the theme for that World Youth Day was chosen by Pope John Paul II. But then he passed away just a couple months before the event. The newly elected Holy Father, now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, perhaps wasn't as comfortable in front of the large crowds as John Paul II. Perhaps he didn't have the same stage presence or charisma as his predecessor. But if he lacked anything in those areas, he made up for it with his words. The Holy Father spoke the truth direct and straightforward words that speak to our hearts. In Germany, he reminded us that we live in a secularized culture, one characterized by a forgetfulness of God and vain pursuits of human self-sufficiency. Therefore, in our daily life, wherever we live and work, in families, schools, workplace, all of life settings, we must bear witness that human reality cannot be justified without reference to the creator. Without the creator, the creature would disappear. Christians must be committed to bearing more forceful witness to God's presence in the world, not be afraid to speak about God and bear witness to our faith. It's a mistake to think that any public reference to faith will somehow undermine our state or civil institutions or that it could ever encourage intolerance. 
Quite the opposite. Our faith provides a firm foundation upon which all other activities are based. The Holy Father reminded us that the Mass is a special part of that journey on which we travel to encounter Jesus Christ. Because it is there in the Mass, we of course find Christ himself. The Magi found Jesus at Bethlehem, which means house of bread. He lay in a humble stable on some straw. On the straw lay the grain of wheat, who by dying would bring forth much fruit. When speaking of himself, Jesus would later use this image and say, I am the bread of life. The bread I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. I'm sure every person attending a world youth day has different experiences, different moments that are highlights for them. But for me, one of the most powerful moments in Germany was at the vigil. When after the Vespers, there was a procession with the Blessed Sacrament. And we all watched as the Pope himself knelt down before the monstrance. Here is the leader of one billion Catholics. And yet even he humbles himself in the presence of Christ. In the consecrated host, Jesus is present in his body, blood, soul, and divinity and offers himself to us as the food of eternal life. When the Magi reached their goal, after following the star for thousands of miles, what did they find? Just a child in the arms of his mother. Nothing extraordinary at first sight. But that child was different than any other. He is the only son of God. From the poverty of the crib to his abandonment on the cross, we see that he became poor in order to reveal to us his divine glory. He came down among us as on a journey to offer salvation to sinners. This is the mystery made present in the sacrament of the Eucharist. The Magi knelt down and did homage to the child Jesus as the one awaited by the nations and foretold by the prophets. So too we can also adore him in the Eucharist, acknowledge him as our creator, our only Lord and Savior. The Mass becomes a true encounter with the one who gave himself wholly for us. And now he calls us to contemplate his divine glory in heaven which is to be our blessed and final home. Those of you who have traveled know how every pilgrimage is going to have inconveniences. When traveling with others in a group, one has to be extra patient. I can't just do what I want because I have to stick with the others. The group travels as fast as the slowest person. And then at World Youth Day, multiply that by about a million. And there will always be sacrifices and lots of walking and long lines. And then when we're traveling in a foreign country, we can be tempted to complain that they don't do things like we do. And if that's your attitude, I 
recommend you just stay home. Because <laughs> we have to be somewhat open to new experiences, even if that means things like language barriers, strange food, and yes, and sanitary toilets. Where did Mary and Joseph stop along the way going from Bethlehem to Nazareth? Nazareth to Bethlehem. There were no truck stops and nice restrooms along the way, trust me. But on the pilgrimage of life, we don't have that option to just stay home. It's not an option because all of us are journeying to get home. And if all we do is complain about the inconveniences along the way, we're going to make the trip miserable for both ourselves and others. We must be prepared to encounter trials and obstacles. And in these moments, we encounter the cross. Those are the moments we should recognize we are especially close to Christ, or better, he is especially close to us. Through Jesus Christ, the cross has been transformed. We've become a sign of our salvation, a light in our darkness. Since you came to hear our Bishop James Conley, I know you won't mind my taking some material from his Epiphany column back in 2013. The point of his story was that these wise men are figures that teach us, that we should learn from and imitate the Magi in this story. Bishop Conley summarizes it this way. The threefold lesson of the Magi is simple and powerful. Seek Christ personally, honor him as king, and uphold his reign against its opponents. So the first lesson is that we need to seek Christ personally. It was not enough that these wise men perhaps knew the ancient pagan prophecy which was from the non-Jew Balaam, which said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It seems there were many wise men outside of Israel that knew about this prophecy, but that was not enough. Only these wise men came. It was not enough that there were that they were astronomers watching the skies and thus observed the star. There were many, many astronomers in the ancient world. Many other people would have seen that star. But none of them showed up. It was not even enough to know the Hebrew scriptures and to know how the prophet Micah predicted. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the cities of Judah. For from you shall come a star. I'm sorry, from, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The chief priests and the scribes all knew this passage. In fact, they told the Magi about it. Yet none of them went to Bethlehem to adore this newborn king. Why were there no other kings, wise men, priests, or scholars who came to Bethlehem? Even if others had the knowledge, 
They failed to take any practical steps to search for the king. Why did they ignore their longing for an encounter with God and stifle any desire to search for him? We can recall for the Magi, the search came at great personal cost and sacrifice. They had to make a long and uncertain journey over difficult conditions. I imagine they were probably mocked and ridiculed as they departed. They gave very costly and rather impractical gifts to a family that probably would have appreciated some food and clothing instead. And at the end, what did they have to show for their efforts? Now they're fugitives from King Herod as well. Yet none of this deterred them because they were not content to know about Jesus from a distance. Knowledge about the Messiah is not enough. They not only believed prophecies about the Christ, they took that further step of traveling to see him personally in order to rightfully acknowledge his royal authority. They were men with restless hearts, not satisfied with the superficial and the ordinary. They were moved to go beyond themselves and search for the truth, to search for the true God. And they used their wisdom to open up the path to Jesus Christ. So first we learn from the Magi to seek Christ personally. Second, to honor him as king. In describing their reaction, Matthew literally says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This isn't just winning the Super Bowl and going to Disneyland. This is an ecstasy of one whose heart has been touched with a ray of God's light. And that now they see the hope they have longed for and it has been realized that they have found what they have been seeking. And so they receive a joy that cannot be lost or taken away. Thus they fell down and worshipped him. They threw themselves on the ground before the child in an homage that is offered only to a divine king. Just as we come and continue to kneel before him present in this Eucharist. And the gifts they bring symbolically express the same thing. They acknowledge Christ's royal divinity. Traditionally, the gold points to Jesus' kingship, the incense to his divinity, and the myrrh to the mystery of his passion and death. Gold and incense are also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 60, which says, Caravans of camels shall cover you, dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba shall come, bearing gold and frankincense and heralding the praises of the Lord. And it's mostly because of that passage that Christians have always read in conjunction with, as a prophecy of the Magi, that almost all of our nativity sets have camels in them. 
There's a 2005 Angelus address from Pope Benedict about the important tradition of the Christmas crib, the nativity set. Following a beautiful and firmly rooted tradition, many families set up their crib immediately after the Feast of the Immaculate Conception as if to relive with Mary these days, full of trepidation that preceded, preceded the birth of Jesus. Putting up the crib at home can be a simple but effective way of presenting faith to pass it on to one's children. The crib helps us to contemplate the mystery of God's love that was revealed in the poverty and simplicity of the Bethlehem Grotto. St. Francis of Assisi was so taken by the mystery of the Incarnation that he wanted it to present it anew at Greccio in a living nativity scene, thus beginning an old popular tradition that still retains its value for evangelization today. Indeed, the crib can help us understand the secret of the true Christmas because it speaks of the humility and merciful goodness of Christ, who, though he was rich, made himself poor for us. His poverty enriches those who embrace it, and Christmas brings joy and peace to those who, like the shepherds in Bethlehem, accept the angel's word. Let this be a sign to you. In a manger you will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes. This is still the sign for us too, men and women of the third millennium. There is no other Christmas. There's an amazing quote in the Catechism, number 563, which says, No one, whether shepherd or wise man, can approach God here below except by kneeling before the manger at Bethlehem and adoring him hidden in the weakness of a newborn child. No one can approach God except by kneeling and adoring him who is hidden. We honor Christ's kingship by our humility, by letting him rule in our lives, by allowing God to guide our choices and striving to keep his commands. We build up his kingdom by seeking to do his will. Like the wise men, we must be prayerful and open, watchful of God's signs, reflecting on how he calls us. And what we must recall that seeking God's will at times means our faith will be opposed. Our church will be persecuted. Even the value of life itself will be disparaged and belittled. This is why we have a duty to stand up and fight when truths like life, liberty, and marriage come under attack. Like these wise men who refused to cooperate with Herod, we must commit ourselves to defend Christ's kingship and refuse to tolerate or cooperate with evil. And even if our efforts seem so little, united with Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, we can be assured that they are never insignificant. Seek Christ personally, honor him as king, and uphold his reign against its opponents. Now, some might object that the Magi didn't have it so bad because they had a star to guide them and follow them. And I don't get a star. 
Now, I don't want to debunk or criticize any of the scientific theories that try to explain the star, like the theory that Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn were aligned to create a celestial supernova. But rather, I do like the theory of Scott Hahn. Who told Zachariah about the coming of the forerunner of the Messiah? An angel. Who announced the birth of Jesus to Mary? An angel. Who announced it to Joseph in a dream? An angel. Who announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds in the field? An angel. Is there maybe a pattern here? Who perhaps led the Magi to Christ? Could it have been an angel? Well, don't complain you don't have a star. Because since the time we were little children, we've learned to pray that our angel would light and guard and guide us. Ever think about that prayer, light and guard and guide? It sounds a lot like what the angel did with the Magi. We are not without guidance and help and protection on our pilgrimage of life. And besides the angels, we have the great light of the saints to follow as well. After finding and worshiping Christ, the wise men returned to their own country by another road. Pope Benedict interprets this to represent that conversion which takes place in anyone who encounters Jesus. There's a moment of transformation. As St. Paul says, not to conform to the world or this age, but to strive to do the will of God, what is good, pleasing, and perfect. When we meet Christ and accept his gospel, our lives change. And we are led to communicate our experience to others. This is a challenge given to each one of us. Do we allow ourselves to be conformed to this age, to this world? Or are we transformed by our worship, offering God a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing? Do we allow the light of Christ to illuminate our lives and hearts? Does our faith in Christ make a difference in our world, in the actions of our lives? Do we bring that light to others who still live in darkness? Christ awaits you in his word. Listen carefully to him and his presence will arouse your hearts. He awaits you in the sacrament of penance. With his mercy, he will cure all the wounds caused by sin. Do not be afraid to ask God's forgiveness because he never tires of forgiving us like a father who loves us. He is waiting for you in the Eucharist, the sacrament of his presence and his sacrifice of love. He has a longing and desire for you. There's a help we receive in confession and a strengthening received at each Mass by which we are enabled to live our faith even when it's challenging 
even when we encounter difficulties. For the path we are on is one of conversion and repentance, a journey which always leads to the cross. For Jesus tells us, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. St. John Paul II, in his encyclical on mercy, Divis in Misericordia, tells us, authentic knowledge of the God of mercy, the God of tender love, is a constant and inexhaustible source of conversion, not only as a momentary interior act, but also as a permanent attitude, as a state of mind. Those who come to know God in this way, who see him in this way, can live only in a state of being continually converted to him. They live, therefore, in a state of conversion which marks out the most profound element of the pilgrimage of every man and woman on earth. Our pilgrimage is to be characterized by a continual conversion. Now, if I didn't go on pilgrimages, I could possibly take a dream vacation or luxury cruise. But afterwards, what would I have to show for it? The difference is that after every pilgrimage, I return changed. As I said, a pilgrimage is not just visiting beautiful churches, cathedrals, and shrines of saints. No, we go on a pilgrimage to encounter Jesus Christ in a deeper way, such that when we return, we can bring Christ back with us. We can bring Christ into our daily lives. We can bring him to our families and friends, to our parishes, schools, and workplaces. So ultimately what this means is we don't have to be in an exotic or distant place to hear Jesus call, to experience his love, to encounter him. It simply means we must go to Mass, go to confession, go to adoration, go to prayer, go to the Bible, go on a retreat, and then go out to your friends and others. Again, the answer to life's most important questions is a person. Jesus Christ himself as St. John Paul II would so often remind us, Jesus Christ is the answer to the question that is every human life. A central theme to all that Pope Francis has said during his pontificate is that we need a genuine and personal turning to Christ as a friend each and every day. Seek Christ personally. What Pope Francis proposes most fundamentally is that each and every Catholic in a genuine and personal act, turn once again to Christ and unfailingly each day ask Christ to be with us as a friend. The Pope even suggests some words we could use. Lord, I've let myself be deceived. In a thousand ways I've shunned your love. Yet here I am once more to renew my covenant with you. I need you. Save me once again, Lord. Take me once more into your redeeming embrace. We come here on retreat 
recalling that each one of us is on a spiritual journey, striving to discover what Jesus is asking of us. And so I pray this retreat will be for you more like a pilgrimage than a vacation. Jesus is inviting us to encounter him, calling us to follow him. Saying to us each and every day, come follow me. And so each time we come to Mass, whether it's in a foreign country or a local parish, we can ask, am I truly open to Jesus' life-changing call? We answer that call by the way we live our lives in a state of constant conversion, experiencing the presence, love, mercy, and forgiveness of Christ, this babe in a manger now present for us on the altar. And having experienced that ourselves, bring that gift to others. To Jesus Christ be all praise and glory forever. Amen.